Welcome to University, a podcast for young people navigating life's big transitions. I'm Anne-Marie Ceresso, your host. On University, you'll hear stories from college students, you'll get tips from experts, and occasionally you'll hear from a parent's perspective on how to manage this time of change in your life consciously. Find yourself, find your purpose, find your people, and pursue you fearlessly. Today, you're meeting Dr. Joe Krupnik. Joe's a Harvard grad who founded the Krupnik Approach here in Chicago. This was a fascinating interview, and I think you'll really think differently about the college application process after listening to this interview. Joe talks about it differently than I've ever heard before, and I was really surprised to learn what Joe thought was the most important thing you need to know for your college application. It's pretty interesting stuff. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to university. Today, I'd like you to meet Joe Krupnik. Joe is founder of the Krupnik Approach, and he has worked with both of my two kids. Um, well, I have three kids, but two of my three kids. Thanks, Joe. Love it. You've done amazing work with both Robert and Melissa. Um, Pleasure. Yeah. And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, Why don't yeah. you introduce yourself to, to our audience? I know like works with young people with academic and learning difficulties. But you do a whole lot more than that, right? Yeah, so I'm mean, Dr. Krupnik, Dr. Joe Krupnik. I work with, I run a, a program called the Krupnik Approach, um, which, well, it, it started, um, so I, I've been doing individual tutoring for a long time. I've been doing for 15 years or so. I um, put myself through my PhD program at Harvard doing tutoring of mostly a test prep. And when I finished the program, I was living, actually I was living in, in Chicago because I was doing research out here. Um, I kind of, I was at a crossroad and, and had to make the decision of sort of what to actually, I was 30, you know, 35, trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life, right? And I decided to make this program uh, bigger uh, rather than doing academia because um, one thing is that I think there, well, a few things, but one thing is that I really, I, mean, I love working with students. Um, the test prep process, which is really a lot bigger than the test prep itself, um, is itself reducible to the, the, the at least the ACT, SAT are, are reducible to a set of, of rules and sort of formulas. And it's it's very much the kind of thing that can be researched. So um, we accumulated about. Essentially, we've been accumulating large data on these tests, and so very much like a, you know, a, an academic might go about looking for empirical evidence and doing statistical analysis of um, of something else. Like what we're doing, or what I started doing before we started the Krupnik approach was look. I looked through, you know, we I went and analyzed about twenty five thousand questions from the ACT and the SAT and started discerning patterns. Um, and and what arrived, we arrived at is a, a you know an approach to an exam which for exams in general which uh, in which there's a real in which the the conception the myth that these are reflections of what you learn in high school um, turns out to be more or less incorrect and not only that but that the way to really do well on test prep is not primarily through the content but by I mean, partly through the content of the test but it's also learning the skills. The test-taking skills themselves, much some of which involve logic, some of which involve pattern recognition, some of which involve knowing how the test works. So that's a large part. That's a part of what we do, um, kind of in recognition of the fact that these tests are not 
Um, you know, these are not reflections of, you know, your academic competence or something like that. Um, yeah, that's so interesting to me because when Alyssa, who, who just took her, her tests last mm -hmm. year, um, when you gave her the, um, the formula, like the formulas for how to take the test, you know, this, this idea that it's not about the content, it's more about how you're taking the test, not what the test is. Right. Um, it was a game changer for her. And I'm curious because you said it's not actually about what you're learning in high school. So as yeah. a student, are, are tests in school the same or are tests in school mostly about content? So is school not really preparing you at all for SAT and ACT? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's a complicated one. Um, and it's hard. To, so I think it's hard to answer that in a very short um, sort of pithy yeah. or well, well structured way, because there's a lot to say about it. Um, so I think that, that, so when I talk about these strategies and I, you know, we say that like, you know, that so much of this involves knowing procedures and methods of, um, that are embedded in the test itself. I'm not, I don't, it, I'm not saying that that means you don't need to know, you know, the rules of grammar. You don't need to know yeah. the Pythagorean theorem. I get that. I get that. So there's certain ways in which the content of the test is indistinguishable from the strategies of the test. Uh, and that's a separate issue. And maybe that's what you can discuss, but it's a, a more abstract one. But um, I think basically it's the, it, so when you, one issue about school in particular, a few things to say. Number one is that the specific skills that are, that are uh, evaluated on the ACT, SAT um, bear some resemblance to academic coursework, but not as much resemblance as people think. So one example is that the grammar that you have on that, the grammar on the English of the ACT or the writing and language of the SAT is barely taught anymore in American high schools. Um, a place like lab where your, your, your kids go, it's, it's not taught. I went to lab school for until eighth grade myself. And I know that lab is not a very strong or doesn't have, a, there's not much of an emphasis at all on grammar. Um, and that's just something that's also pervaded in you know, most of the American high school system. Um, another example would be that the science on the ACT, which is actually called science reasoning, very subtle. It's not scientific knowledge of courses, not, not scientific knowledge really so much of biology, chemistry, and physics as it is um, knowing the scientific method, the or knowing how to think about questions in a scientific way. Yeah, knowing how to um, think about it, right. Right. And so the way we talk, talk about it is that it, it's less, unlike in school, like if you have to prepare for a history test or something, you cram all of it in the night before, or you cram it or you study over the course of a, you know, a week, but a lot of it involves um, you know, involves integrating material into your short-term memory. Um, and it's very much about then, you know, then you're presenting that material, demonstrating that you know that material on the test. Whereas the ACT is not really so much about knowledge or memorizing as it is about procedure and method. So it, it's really, in some sense, it's more about learning how to do something than it is learning, learning, some, learning to know something or about knowing something. Yeah, um, which, uh, sorry to interrupt, but like as you say it, to me that's way more valuable than some of the <laughs> information we're trying to shove into our kids' heads at school. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, so it, right, I mean, in some ways it is, right. So I think that's, to some extent, that's, that perhaps you can make, you can certainly make an argument for that. Um, um, but there's another part of this too, which is I think important. Um, so one is that the content itself is not, uh, does not bear 
immediate. It's not a one-to-one relation with the courses you take in school. Um, but the second thing is that in school, especially at private schools like Lab or Parker or Latin, places like that, most of, the, most of the students we have teachers who want them to do well, you know, they have an investment in them. And so every part of the process when they take an exam in school, um, every part of the learning experience before the test is sort of geared around the preparation for that test. So the teacher is sort of constantly in dialogue with the students, kind of trying to help them do well so that when they take the test, they, you know, they, there's, there's, they will sort of know where things stand. And the teacher is even in some sense on the test in dialogue with them because the teacher is both teaching it and writing the test at the same time. Yeah. Whereas the ACT, SAT are organized, and we talk about it sort of like the metaphor, like a set of evil, evil geniuses sitting around at a round table um, trying at every turn to trap kids, coax kids into the wrong answer, psych them out, make them anxious, and essentially make them fail. So it's the opposite. I mean, in school, teachers want their students to do well. In the ACT, think of the, the test maker. We, we try to you know, encourage students to think of the test maker sort of competitive way as a sort of adversary. It's your, it's your intellectual opponent. So it's like more like a chess game um, than it is like a like a, um, a collaboration or you know, a bridge game or something where it's a collaborative effort. So basically, that's another element of it that is really tricky for kids because they're not used to this idea that, that, someone, that, that you know, there might be a trap in every answer. So getting the right answer for the ACS, as they often involve not only making sense of the strategies and the content, but then recognizing where they're trying to trap you. It's uh, about outsmarting your opponent, right? Outsmarting your opponent, right. Which is super ironic to me sitting here as a parent thinking, you know, we are spending, you know, the first 18 years of our kids' lives trying to set them up for success only to sit down and take this test. And they're like being, you know, they're being challenged to a completely different degree because you're right. As they're in school, their teachers are their allies. Mm -hmm. And also the teachers are invested in students doing well because not only in private schools, but in public schools, um, grades matter for the school because the school right. wants to sell themselves. So they, sure. they, they're invested in their students doing well for a lot of different reasons, not just to get into college. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's jump. We're going to jump all over the place, but the, the question that's popping in my mind right now is, so how do kids position themselves to get into their, you know, top choice schools? If, if we can't use test scores and, and, you know, like what I know with my kids applying to school is everyone's got a 4.0 and a great ACT, you know, SAT, ACT score. Like th- th- that doesn't make anyone stand out anymore. So, right. and not everyone has a 4.0, but you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Sure. The competition pool is, is essentially the same. So students are being told, well, focus on the essay. That really matters. Or focus on your extracurricular. That really matters. Like, so how do, how do students know how to position themselves these days? Like, what are the things you tell them to focus on besides, you know, obviously you need to have a, you know, a, a satisfactory test score. So, I mean, a few things. One is that I think there's a sophistication among students now that, that's totally unprecedented. Like, students understand college application process better now than they ever have. I mean, that's, that's got, I'm sure there's great, there are good things about that. Obviously, there are, there are things that are not great about it. Um, and then I think, I guess the other thing is that when we talk about this process, like I think the thing that we talk about the ACT, SAT and grades too, to some extent, uh, as though it's about, you know, it's about 
getting in the game, like a threshold essentially that for, especially if you want to apply to one of these really selective schools, the ACT and ICT should be thought of as you want to meet a minimum standard. And once you've met the minimum standard, everything above that, like the marginal difference is not really going to be very great. So once you've hit a 1450 or so on the SAT, once you've hit a 32 or so or 33 on the ACT, um, you can pretty much call it quits. There's no, there's no real major benefit in most selective schools um, uh, of getting, say, a 1550 rather than a 1500. So like that part of it is really important to remember. Um, but it also speaks to what your, your point that, you know, that we have so many students, they're going to be applying to selective schools. You have so many students who are so similar to you uh, in terms of your, your numbers. But so GPA operates a little bit differently, I think. So we've developed this probability model that is um, estimates college admissions using about 2 million data points or so with, um, with, with ACT, SAT numbers of, for both admits and denies at all the colleges across the country and with data from about 25 high schools in Chicago, but we can basically give students like a very precise estimate of where they sort of stand at different, in any, any different college and we do it by early decision, early action. And it's really cool actually. That's um, really cool. I wish I would have known about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it just, we just developed it. Like we're, we're um, our software, like our programming guys, have been working on it and it uses Naviance data, but it basically, um, it uses like a machine learning program to extract all of the data and then to assign probability weights. And it's like, we just, it's something we've been working on over the last two months. And like, now we've really got it to a point where we can, we can, uh, we can run it. They, they already have those probability things on Naviance, right? Which I've read. They don't really, because, so what they have on Naviance, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a rudimentary form. So on Naviance, they can tell you, so we have, we have like the lab Naviance, and you can look at Naviance and they'll say, all right, you know, 10 people applied last year to Brown, three people got in. Um, and then you look at the scattergram, and the scattergram kind of gives you an idea of where they stood. But it only gives you a vague idea, because what you really want to know is not that three got in, out of 10, what you want, number one is what you want to know is what are your odds, right? Like what are your odds with your particular scores, with your particular GPA, which three out of 10 doesn't give you. And then if you, when you look at the scattergram, it's a little bit more useful, but it's still, it's not, it's, you know, it's hard to make sense of it because it's just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of dots, right? Like right. it doesn't actually give you a number. And so this is what we're doing. And so, and so we're pooling, we're pooling the data and we're, so like part of it, you have the school element, part of it is you have the early decision elements. Um, early decision is, early decision is, is absolutely unambiguously the smart thing to do. You like triple your odds. Wow. I mean, you triple or even quadruple your odds early decision if you apply um, to, to our, the most selective schools. The correlation between the number of students applying and like whether you'd expect to get in, like the student, more students applying does not reduce your probability of getting in. Um, and ACT, SAT tends to top out. Like at a certain point, it just doesn't matter anymore. Right. Um, grades, for the most part, most schools value grades a little bit more than ACT, SAT. And there, there seems to be no threshold, or there seems to be a, thre there seems to be a threshold, a low threshold, but there seems to be no point at which the, the returns become negative or diminish. 
in the way that they do with ACT, SAT. So you can always push up to the highest level on grades and it'll still benefit you. Um, now, the other, another thing about this is that it turns out from our research that there are certain schools that you might call ACT, SAT schools and certain schools that you might call GPA schools. And this is very unpredictable. It's not, they, don't, they don't announce this. They don't make this public. But there are certain schools that value the ACT, SAT three times as much as grades. Um, and you could have a relatively low GPA, but a very high score, and it, you, you actually would have a really good chance of getting in. And then there are a small number of schools like that. And then there's like a fairly, there's a more significant number of schools that are GPA schools in which the ACT, SAT is not unusually statistically significant, but the GPA matters, you know, 20 times as much as the ACT, SAT. So, but given so what you said, wait, Joe, go back for a second, because given what you mm -hmm. said about the way they create the SAT, ACT, SAT, uh -huh. Um, as sort of the op oppositional or like the chess game test strategy versus, um, you know, students who get good scores who are working in collaboration with their teachers. Okay, that whole thing you were talking about earlier. Right. Would, would that seem to suggest that these certain schools who focus on the SAT and ACT scores are focused on a certain kind of student, a student who's more um, sort of adept at procedure and method like learn how to do versus learning content do you know what do you, do you understand the question i'm asking yeah it's a great question i mean i wish it would be great if they were thinking about it that deeply i don't know if they are i think the part of it is that colleges are not i think colleges are not aware um about what is of what is going on with ac the act sat process or maybe even at high schools and, and coursework as how we would want them to be how could they not be? That seems absurd to me. Well, and I guess you're, you're right that I don't have any, I don't have very much evidence to suggest that that's true. Oh, no, um, I'm not suggesting you're wrong. I'm just saying that seems odd to me that they would, that wouldn't make that like a big priority. But go on. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, the same committee has sat on the board of these admissions yeah. pro, you know, departments for, for the most part for a very long time. And so the, the, there's been a fair amount of, of change in the, the way in which the tests have gone about doing their job. And it's, it's I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that all of them have been, have been keeping up with that. But of course, you're right. I don't I actually don't have any evidence to suggest that's true. My guess though is that the reason, the reason for these differences are more political and economic um, in part. Now the one part, okay. So there's one part that's more substantive, I think. The one part that's more substantive is that the schools that value ACD, SAT or seem to value that more than this one GPA probably what a lot of them are thinking is that they don't really have any, they don't have any really reliable means of comparing high school grades. And especially for schools that are not very well known, especially for high schools that don't have a major presence at these universities already, it's very hard for high schools to know, or colleges to know what a 4.0 means at a school that, that you know, they've never heard of before. Um, and so I think that's one thing that people think is SAT, ACT, it's, it's you know, it's, it's um, they take, every student takes the same test across the country. Now, there, are, there have been problems. The SAT, for example, the curve on the SAT has gotten so unpredictable that students are starting to switch over to the ACT. But that's a separate issue. The issue, though, is that in general, it's, uh, it's, it's more comparable across students, the SAT, ACT, than GPA is. Um, and I think that for that reason, just a separate point is that high schools that are more well-known high schools that already have more of a presence at these universities, for those students, for those schools, uh, SAT, ACT will be less important than they will be at schools that are, you know, relatively unknown. I mean, you asked a bigger question, though, and I, I don't want to, 
fail to address that about if, you know, if we were talking about at selective schools, everyone has 4.0 and 4, 1500, how do they go about thinking about the application? Should we, t I mean, do you want me to talk about that? That'd be great. Okay. So, so I think the thing is, is that they're always, like you want to, if you're a student and you're thinking about this process, um, there are a few things. Like one is that it's worth getting started to th thinking about it earlier rather than later. It is, you know, it is, and it has become an enveloping process that's, that takes much more time, much more forethought, much, much more research and, and just work in general than it ever has. But part of the reason we're doing it earlier rather than later is that you can act, you can establish like distinct advantages at various colleges if you actually, you know, if you begin thinking about this sooner. Um, so one thing is that it's important to know what kind of a student you are and sort of what approximately what kind of college you want to be looking at. Because if you're looking at sort of mid-level state schools, you really, you don't have to worry very much about some of the intangible part of the high school record. You're, it's really about, you know, GPA and ACT for the most part. Um, now, I say that even about schools like Michigan or, um, you know, Wisconsin. These are schools that are very highly ranked, but are, 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 are large public universities in which um, you can still be fairly confident with an ACT, SAT score, and GPA that you will get in because it's, it's very largely governed by those things. Now, if we're thinking, on the other hand, you know, if you're starting to think about a, 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 an East Coast selective Ivy League level school or West Coast for that matter, um, the, op, the, the strategy is a little bit different. So one way to recognize those schools is that they tend to be private. They tend to be on the coast rather than in the Midwest. They tend to be a little bit smaller, like they tend to be less than, say, 8,000 students or so. So in this group, I'm talking about like the Ivy League schools. I'm talking about University of Chicago, that's in the Midwest, but Stanford, um, Duke, and Emory, and um, I mean, there are about 15 schools like this. And for these schools, really the ACT, the, 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 the numbers are the prerequisites, right? So the numbers basically keep you in the game, but they are certainly not enough. And they will not distinguish you from anybody from from other applicants. Uh -huh. Which is not to say that they're less important, but it is to say that if you have, let's say, you're talking about a place like Harvard, you've got you know thirty, forty thousand applicants. Well, of the forty thousand applicants, fifteen thousand of them will be probably capable of doing the work. And of those fifteen thousand, probably ten thousand will have good enough ACT scores and good enough grades that they could get in. That they that there's that they would not be disqualified on those grounds. So then you're talking about a group of 10,000 kids and they have to choose, you know, 2,000. So how do they choose 2,000 out of 10,000? Well, so the first step is you want to be in that 10,000. But the next step is you've got to do something to distinguish yourself um, from everyone else. So it's not about being well-rounded, right? There's a myth that you want to be as well, you want to be able to do everything. Well, yeah, sure. If you're, if you're the captain of the football, if you're the top 10 in the state in football and you also do play the tuba at the highest level, you know, in the city, like that will look good because those are very different and also those are very high level. But if we're talking about just, you know, the president of the student council who also happens to be a ballerina who also happens to play, you know, sort of moderately effective one-on-one, um, -on -one, you know, doubles tennis, mm -hmm. that is, that's the sort of well-roundedness that, that won't make us, that won't make the admissions committee as impressed um, as what, what they call well-lopsidedness. So well-roundedness, the problem with well-roundedness is that it reads as mediocre in everything. 
Because if you do all these different things, you don't really, you're not really passionate about one thing. And the other thing about roundedness is that it suggests to a lot of admissions committees that you're doing these things in order to get into college, which ironically is the worst way to get into college or the way not to get into college to appear that you're trying to get in. Um, so the applicants, they stand a much better chance at these, these, these more, at these private, smaller schools are gonna be school, students who have really distinguished themselves in one or two areas that they're really passionate about. And those areas, it's more impressive, more effective if those areas are things that cannot be done in high school. So like, if you're the best chess player in Chicago, like that's something, I guess they do have chess clubs in, in American high schools, but that's, that looks very interesting to, to colleges because it's something that you did entirely through self, you know, Emersonian self-reliant, um, you, know, you know, interest in the material, right? In, in chess, like it wasn't something that your high school guidance counselor suggested that you should get involved with if it's school and very convenient and easy to do. So if you have a particular area or two areas, it doesn't really matter how obscure those areas are. You know, if it's, if it's stamp collecting or it's baseball cards. I mean, these are things, it, it, what matters is that you're passionate about it and that you think about it in an intellectually stimulating way. Um, and the intellectually stimulating way is, is actually, is easily overlooked. So it's not just that you're good at something, you're interested in something, but that you, you think about it as like an intellectual problem. Um, so like when I was in high school, I was really deeply passionate about the stock market. Uh, and this is, of course, this is during the 90s when it was impossible to lose money in the stock market. And I didn't have any, you know, I didn't actually invest. My parents didn't have any money or anything really invested stuff, but I was doing, I had a model portfolio and I was, I was really interested in the numbers and I was doing interviews with all people, all sorts of professionals around the world. And I was working, I did a, an internship in a money management firm in Chicago. I was doing a lot of things that no one was really doing, but wasn't doing it for college. And it wasn't necessarily something that colleges really wanted me to be interested in in college, but it was just, it showed initiative, you know, it showed the ability to like be different. Um, well, it demonstrated um, how you do life, right? It goes right. back to the procedure and method versus yeah, you know, that's good. Yeah, some way of, of, of you know learning. Like I think this is a really interesting point um, for both students and parents to key into because you talk about passion and distinguishing yourself, and I think a thing that parents tend to get hooked into is sort of pushing their kids to find something they're passionate about. Mm -hmm, yeah. What you just named, um, and by the way, everyone's coming out about this honestly, because we all want what's best for our kids. So I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong or there's a problem, but I do think there's a way we get hooked up into like pushing kids to find their passion. And then you talked about it a minute ago. You're like, I don't know. I was just doing it because that was something I was interested in. Right. And I think there's a big hole right now in um, our kids' opportunities to sort of discover themselves and their passion because they're so flipping busy. Right, yeah. There's no time and space for them to actually, for those things to like naturally um, reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what you're pointing at is so fundamentally important. And in a way, our kids are like, they don't have an opportunity to even figure that out. It sounds like you did. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that's that, that when you're, if you go come home and like so many, I mean, like probably the majority, you know, the kind of students who are going to be applying to these schools, you know, they come home, they work, they, 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 they they're in a sport from, from first, you know, from three to six, three thirty to six thirty, they get home, 
they have dinner, they don't have any time really to sit and think about something that apart from school, apart from the, the extracurriculars they're involved with. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they don't have that time, there's no way that they're going to develop that sort of thing. And then they're, you know, yeah. what's, what's happening is our kids are sort of following someone else's path, right? Yeah, like, oh, exactly. yeah. should play soccer. That looks really good. And they're sort of going about it in this rote way. And, and then they're ending up in these colleges or these situations that aren't really a true reflection of who they are. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole problem here. So rather than us as parents and sort of culturally, what we're all doing is like forcing our kids to create a resume to get into the right college. What you're pointing at here is like distinguishing yourself by your passions seems mm -hmm. like a really important thing. And then, you know, making sure you're supporting that with really good GPA and SAT scores, study habits and all of that. But, but I do think there is um, a gift yeah. for us as parents in just letting go and giving our kids, like even no matter where they are, that they're eventually going to find their way. If we could just trust that they will eventually find their way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other one thing is that then there's, then there's another example. So I have a number of students who have really, really well-defined, very, like, very strong interests in particular things, but whose interests do not directly align with, with those of their schools or with, more importantly, more with their parents. So I have um, one of those students, in fact, is writing, has been writing novels that have been, you know, been published online, and they're very, very good. I mean, they're quite good, and that's what he's devoted his high school you know, career to, which I think is every bit, probably a lot more impressive than, you know, be getting an A in all of his English classes or something. But, of course, you know, from the perspective of the parents, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't, not immediately clear how that leads to great college outcomes. Now, I think it will lead to better college outcomes than if he had been doing anything else. But, um, but it's true that, that, that you have to, I think it's important for parents to go with, to, to respond, um, to, to, go, to get, respond favorably to their students' interests, no matter what they are, um, because excellence of any kind, pretty much, I think, is, is, really, is really terrific. I mean, it's really um, yes. worth fostering. I mean, passion should be, should be encouraged because they're pretty hard to find. And most students don't find their passions until, you know, very late in life, if at all. Well, I think that's so true. And I, you know, I'm just going to reinforce what I said earlier. I think people aren't, don't find it because there's no time and space to figure it out. Like when you're a child, this is the yeah. reason I like, you know, the John Dewey philosophy of learning because you learn by doing, you learn by being in your environment, you learn by the world you're drawn to. I use this example all the time when Robert was little, he had a good friend um, named Matt and they were literally two years old and they would see a stick and Robert would pick it up and it would immediately become a bat or a pool cue or a golf club and his friend Matt would pick it up and it would immediately come a drum stick or a guitar. Like mm. it was the same thing in their environment, yet that through their lens, they were seeing that tool and using it differently. Early on, I started to pay attention to that. And I mean, from very early age, my son was sleeping with a baseball under his pillow. You know I mean? He was a year old. So you, we all don't see the world the same way. So to support them in their excellence of any kind, I think that's a beautiful point, Joe. I love yeah, that. No, and and that, that brings me to this other point that you said a minute ago. Um, let's talk about, does it matter? So where you go to school, does it really oh, matter? The college? What college you go to? Well, I think the question, the answer to that question depends on, requires one to ask another question, which is what is it, 
know, how, what does it mean? What do you mean by does it matter? Does it matter for what? Okay, in terms of leading a successful life. So what is a successful life mean? Why don't you define success for me? Okay, no, I'm mean, asking these as, as questions, not yeah. in order to be... Well, this is one of the questions we're talking about on this yeah. podcast. We're asking students to really define success for themselves, right? Because for the first 18 years of their lives, success has been defined for them. This is what success right. looks like in elementary school. This is what it looks in high school. This is what your resume should look like. This is what it looks like to get into the right college. Now they're in college and they're, they have space to think about like, or they should. What does success really mean to me? And yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, I think that... So I think that the tendency for most people is to not really think about this question at all, to sort of take a sort of template of what, what success is, pre-existing sort of set of notions. Tell us how you define success for you. Do you consider yeah. yourself successful? Well, it's a really difficult question. I mean, I think success, I think success is being, in part success is being able to think for yourself uh, and being able to make decisions that, that are better founded on um, on, on a set of reasons that you believe in um, and they're not simply governed by, by what you know, the, the rest of the conventional world thinks. I think partly success is, I think success, there's one way I sometimes think about success, which is if, we, if I was thrown into a solitary confinement in a prison or on a ship or you know, was forced to spend the rest of my life in the dark with no other human being except no money, no money, no nothing except for the most meager amount of food just to stay alive. Would I be able to be interesting to myself? Would I be able to sustain a certain level of interesting thought in my head to be able to make life continue to be worthwhile? Or would I want to just die? And if by that standard, yeah, I think by that standard, I definitely feel successful. Because I think that that and that's what the and that also is is what the, the cliche about the liberal arts stuff is about. Um, the cliche about the liberal arts stuff, about learning, about reading the classics, about taking a core, the core you know, doing, pursuing the, you know, taking courses in the core curriculum in University of Chicago or Columbia. The, that's about, just, I mean, they don't talk about it this way, but it's in part, it's about not just learning how to think in some sort of platitudinous sense, but learning how to think and what to think about when everything else around you doesn't really support that. Um, or is not, is not organized around that. It's much more connected to, you know, things like meaning and happiness. I mean, because success in part, I think if you use this way I'm talking about it, that you're able to, to stay, you're able to stay interested and, and alive um, in, the, in the absence of life around you in every sense. Well, it's also that kind of quality is also, you know, makes it possible for, for a person to be able to hang on and hold, hold themselves together you know, under, under the kind of, under huge pressure, under very, you know, very difficult kinds of adversity, um, which all, which affect all of us. So whatever that, whatever that may be, I think what I, I feel at least is that I have the confidence that whatever happens that I can hold, keep myself together. Like I've been through a lot apart from education, but that, that um, whatever happens in my life, like I know that I'm going to be okay, you know, and there's that sense of balance. It's not a sense of balance that has anything to do with money. There's anything to do with power. There's anything to do with your job. Does anything to do with anything else except what, like that feeling of what it's like to be, to be myself, you know, the feeling inside yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I don't know. I don't think that that, I think that that's certainly not talked about much, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. I like that answer. I like that. Um, you're pointing to the sense of balance inside yourself. And right. that's really the core, what it's all about. And 
you know, am I interesting to myself? Can I wake up every day and be interested in my own self-expression, my own experience of self, my own, you know, being in the world? And right. I, I think um, particularly this time in college it, or, you know, just this time in life when we're transitioning to being our own being, it's hard to know who you are as yourself. Everyone's voice is screaming inside you. So, you know, I think we spend much of our life trying to figure out who we really are at our core. And when we get there, if we could really like what we see, I think that's pretty cool. Well, I really enjoyed this and I, I think you're doing amazing things. I love the work that you've done with Robert and Alyssa and Ashley's coming around the corner in a few years. So soon she'll be working with you. Tell me um, how people can get a hold of you if they're interested in connecting with you here in Chicago. And I'm assuming you only work locally, but do you work, um, you know, all over? So we work and we do work all over and we, so we have about, I don't know, 150 students right now. We have students, we're not just working with students for test prep or for um, even for college admissions. We're also working with students who are younger. Uh, we often suggest that, if, if for, especially if you want to get started with this process in the way that we've been talking about, it's very useful to get started earlier and just sort of have to think about the trajectory in a bigger, in sort of the bigger picture of it. Um, but we also help students get into high, you know, with high school exams, getting into high school exams. And in terms of our, we have about 10 tutors on staff. They're all uh, very, very good. They're both like Ivy League equivalent, educated at master's or above level. And they are also great teachers. Some of them are, in fact, are both. They, they are teachers at schools in addition to what they do with us. Um, so there are a lot of great people we work with. We, are, you know, we try to get, uh, uh, the main thing here, we're, we're trying to organize this in a way that's going to be efficient and that will get the kind of results that you want while also teaching you some things like how to do something, like logical rules, or things that are perhaps more important, just as important at least, as the content on these exams. My website is, uh, is uh, krupnikapproach.com. That's K-R-U-P-N-I-C-K approach.com. Um, email, you can just email me directly. We have a number of email addresses, but my email is joekrupnik at gmail.com well, can they get that on the website you can get, you can get that on the website also awesome we see students at our offices at 321 north clark we also do skype sessions we have many students we work with on skype we have students who hear about us from all over the world so we have we have a student we see from ireland who's preparing for the sat in america we have a student from germany we have a lot of different people from a lot of different environments a lot of different backgrounds um skype is has become a very good means of, of doing a lot of these things. Um, yeah, it's such a gift. It's such a gift nowadays to have Yeah, that. it really is, yeah. I loved learning from Joe today. A few things really stood out for me. Number one, it was fascinating to me to understand his perspective on testing. I was reminded of the importance of knowing how to think versus what to think this big idea to master your ability to learn to think and open to creativity and innovation is so important and valuable in today's world. And two, it was really refreshing to hear that while test scores play an important role in the college application, he reminds us that excellence of any kind is to be honored and celebrated. And it's really important to distinguish yourself by finding your unique passion.
one of my favorite topics here on university. My big takeaway, what distinguishes you? What sets you uniquely apart, not just on your application, but in your life? How are you pursuing your authentic passions? How are you learning what they are? What makes you unique, if anything, and how do you do that differently than others? These are all questions I'm really excited to continue to explore with you. And I hope you'll join me next week as we learn why Olivia chose to pursue her passion, no matter what the cost, and how she's choosing to live her life fearlessly to pursue her dreams. Thanks for listening to University. If you like what you heard, I would be absolutely thrilled for you to share with a friend and equally grateful for you to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps. You can find more information and stay in touch over at university.u on Instagram or at university on Facebook and Twitter. I really hope to see you there. If you'd like support navigating the chaos and you're ready to create a more fulfilling life, I offer live weekly group coaching sessions every Thursday from four to five central time. It's a place to gather together, be seen and heard, reduce your stress, learn how to take back control of your life again. Give the first week a try for free and check it out. You can find out more at the link below or ping me on Facebook and Instagram for more.